Lord's Day 22, beginning with question 57. How does the resurrection of the body comfort you? Not only will my soul be taken immediately after this life to Christ, it said, but also my very flesh, raised by the power of Christ, will be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. How does the article concerning life everlasting comfort you? Even as I already now experience in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, so after this life I will have perfect blessedness such as no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, no heart has ever imagined, a blessedness in which to praise God eternally. Amen. Well, as we come to the scripture passages, may God continue to bless and reveal his truth to us by the Holy Spirit tonight. I was just thinking this past week with all that has happened, um, when a personal, national, or global tragedy strikes, where should our hearts run to for refuge? It's a very practical question. Where you run to for refuge. While there are many small blessings of comfort that God gives us in life, family, friends, uh, other comforts in creation, the greatest comfort is found in the one and only blessing that promises the glorification of all other blessings. Uh, what is that blessing? It is the resurrection of the dead unto everlasting life in Jesus Christ. And what I mean is this, that at the end, when Christ returns to purge the earth by fire and all is brought to naught, Jesus' resurrection power will be sort of like the seed planted and reproduced to recreate all good things to the glory of God. Or in other words, when Jesus returns to make all things new, he will do so through the power of his resurrection from the dead. When I think of Christ, Jesus resurrected from the dead, I see by faith God's powerful promise to reverse the curse of sin and death. We think of Adam's, in the beginning, Adam's original sin, his one act of disobedience there at a tree brought the whole curse on all of the cosmos, right? Whereas Christ, by his one act of obedience on the tree, brought that curse to an end, and the whole cure now is for the whole entire cosmos of God's good creation. And Jesus' resurrection from the dead means that God, as we sing at Christmas time, Joy to the World, will no more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Instead, Christ shall return to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Yes, as far as the curse is found. So what kind of power is this? Well, it's, this resurrection power is otherworldly, victorious, recreation power. Think of this. God has, Jesus has the power to take that which is dead and lifeless and make it rise up again to newness of life. Resurrection power is greater than the power of God's original creation because it is one thing for God to create all things out of nothing. It is a whole other thing for God to create all good things out of brokenness, that which has been corrupted and tainted by sin. 
Uh, we even know this to a degree, a small degree, with uh, our devices or appliances that we might have in our own household, right? Uh, we fix things as they break along the way. Some of us spend more time fixing them, uh, time and time again, uh, refusing to buy something new. But eventually, almost all things get old and broken, and it, becomes, it comes to a point where it would be easier to build something entirely new from scratch than to try and fix the old thing that is totally in disrepair. But God displays his great love, mercy, and beautiful power in this. He, he chose not to trash his broken creation, but instead he entered into the brokenness and died trying to fix it. And when it looked like he had failed, three days later he rose again from the dead victorious. And Jesus has secured now the power to fix all things, to make all things new. He didn't even say this. He didn't say, well, I'll just scrap it for a few good parts and start over with, with the good parts that are left. No. Instead, the Father sent his Son, who is willing to be thrown away as trash. And then he scrapped his Son from the dead. As Paul says, the stone that was rejected by the builders has now become the cornerstone. The, the cornerstone upon which God is building now and will build his entire new creation. Of God's servant Jesus, Isaiah says this of him, a bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench, he will faithfully bring forth justice, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, the coastlands wait for his law. So he didn't give up on his creation. He didn't throw it away to the trash. No, he doesn't do that with any of us who belong to him. He was willing to come and die to redeem us, to restore us, and to renew us through the power of his resurrection. And the resurrection of Christ from the dead is that blessing that has ensured for us the eternal glorification of every other blessing. It's through the resurrection of Christ that all things that are blessed in life that we experience will be ours again for all of eternity. These truths that we are considering tonight are especially comforting and a true refuge for our souls through the darkest of times, the place that we should run to uh, when we are in sorrow and pain. And so for the remainder of our time tonight, we'll consider these truths that we read from the Heidelberg Catechism and find uh, where they are supported in Scripture themselves. And so first, we consider the resurrection of the dead. And what we believe by this is that not only, as the Catechism says, will my soul be taken immediately after this life to Christ its head, but also my very flesh, raised by the power of Christ, will be reunited with my soul and made like his glorious body. So that article there, or what it's describing, can be divided into two parts. First, the hope that our souls immediately enter into a conscious, spiritual communion with Christ after death. And secondly, the hope that Christ will raise up our physical bodies, our self-same physical bodies, from dust to glory when he returns. And he will reconstitute us as embodied souls forevermore. That first hope is found most clearly in Philippians 1, verse 21 to 24, if you'd like to turn and follow along. So in Philippians 1, 21 to 24, 
we find Paul, he's contemplating his own impending death by execution. He knew it was on the horizon. He was in prison. He knew it was very possible that Rome could decide to execute him at any moment. And in the face of death, this is what we hear him say. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So Paul here had come to realize that the whole purpose of his life, here and now in this world, is Christ. Christ. He lived for him, his kingdom, to share the good news about his death and resurrection and to reach the lost sheep of Christ in his name. That was what life was all about for Paul. That's where he he found life and joy and fulfillment in that. But Paul also came to realize that there was gain in death. And here he's not romanticizing death. He doesn't have rose-colored glasses about what death is. Uh, Elsewhere, uh, Paul calls death the last enemy that Christ will put under his footstool and be destroyed. And so death is not a good thing in the eyes of Paul or in the scriptures and in themselves. What then is he talking about when he says that to die is gain? What gain is there? Well, Paul desired what he believed came after death. That's where the gain would come. According to the Apostle Paul here, what comes immediately after death? Departure from this sinful, broken world to be with Christ, to be present with him, which is far better. As Jesus said to the thief on the cross next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. And this, loved ones, it's a great comfort for us as we face our own death or as we face the death of a loved one. We know that after death, painfully pulls away us from our loved ones that are still alive here on earth, or as death terribly steals a loved one away from us too early, well, God gives us this comforting promise that all those who die with faith in Jesus immediately gain Jesus on the other side of death. They gain his presence, his comfort right there, waiting for them after death. Death is like a wolf trying to steal Christ's precious sheep away, but he immediately, the good shepherd, comes and gathers up each and every one of his own and brings them home into paradise with him, which, as Paul says, is far better, far greater than anything we can find in this broken world. And what what a great comfort it is to know this, to know this by faith, not by wishful thinking, This is not just mere optimistic, wishful thinking, but this is by faith in God's promise to us here. That the souls of our loved ones who died in the Lord are presently with him even now. As the Westminster Larger Catechism says, they are perfect in holiness and received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory. And so that is that first hope that is found here in the catechism. The second hope of the redemption of our physical bodies is found clearly in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 to 21. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 to 21, where Paul says this, 
but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so Paul here is speaking of that great hope that is to come at the end of the age. Elsewhere, he refers to it as the redemption of our bodies. We believe that Jesus will return just as surely as he rose and ascended into glory. He will come back. And when he does, he will transform our lowly, humble bodies, either as they are now, if he comes back tomorrow, either as, he, as we are now, with our bodies kind of falling apart and not functioning as they should, or even after they have been brought low down into the grave. He has the power to turn dust into glory. So we believe that on that last day, Jesus will return back for our bodies to claim them as his own. Why? We belong to him in body and soul, right? Jesus is not content with just having our souls with him in glory. That's not enough for Jesus. His redemption of us must be full. He died for, not part of us, he died for all of us, body and soul, and he will come to reclaim all of us, body and soul. Now what will our bodies be like? Well, Paul says it clearly, that they will be like his glorious body, like Jesus' own glorious body when he rose again from the dead. The Westminster Larger Catechism fills it out a bit more in detail here, saying, that the bodies of the just by the Spirit of Christ and by virtue of his resurrection as their head shall be raised in power, spiritual, incorruptible, and made like his glorious body. What will that look like? Well, it's hard for us to imagine, but C.S. Lewis, the great author and uh, who had a, a wonderful imagination, helps us here, he describes sort of the glory and splendor that Christ will array each and every one of us, and he says it in this way. Remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person that you talk to today may one day be a creature. If you saw it now, you would be so strongly tempted to worship, right? So uh, the, the glory that we will take on by virtue of Christ's own resurrection and his grace will be so splendid that if it, if it were to happen immediately right here and right now, we would be tempted to fall down and worship that person uh, because it will be so amazing, so glorious. Well, these, friends, are great comforts that we have in the resurrection of the dead. Now on to that second article concerning life everlasting. The Heidelberg Catechism summarizes for us what we believe here saying that even as I already now experience in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, so after this life I will have perfect blessedness, such as no eye has seen, nor ear heard, no heart ever imagined, a blessedness in which to praise God eternally. Now these truths can also be divided into two parts. First, the beginning of eternal life here and now. And secondly, that perfect blessedness that is to come in which we will praise God eternally. The first truth is found in John 17, verse 1 to 5, and so I invite you to find that, John's Gospel, chapter 17, verse 1 to 5. And this is Jesus' high priestly prayer before his own death on the cross. 
Again, John 17, 1 through 5, we hear this. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So similar to Paul as he was contemplating his death, and we heard heard how he was meditating on truths and God's promises, here we find our Lord Jesus as he turned his face toward Jerusalem and his own death that would happen there and the severe judgment of God that would come upon him that was aimed at sinners, but he willingly took for them in love. We hear him speak to his father, talking to his father in prayer. He says many great things here, but notice what he says about eternal life. First, he says that the son has been granted authority to give eternal life to all those that the father had given to him before the foundation of the world. So the elect... Only Jesus can give eternal life. And so we must go to Jesus alone for eternal life. Another quote by C.S. Lewis, he says this, If you want to get warm, what do you have to do? You have to stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are not a sort of a prize that God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. These are not prizes or rewards that are detached from who God is. They are part of who he is, in a sense. And so we must get close to Jesus. We must be with him in faith in order to receive these blessings that he gives, the blessing of eternal life and joy, peace and power, etc., And that's not all. Jesus also tells us here what eternal life consists in. He says, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This intimate knowledge of God, relationship restored, reconciled with our creator. And that shows us, as the catechism says, that eternal life, the quality of it, begins here and now in this life. As we await Christ to return Eternal life is not just about quantity of life, not just about its length, but about its quality. This is what we were made for. And J.I. Packer says this, What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we have in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? To know God. What is the best thing in life? To know God. What in humans gives God most pleasure? Knowledge of himself. This is eternal life, to know God and the one whom he sent. And that aspect of eternal life can begin here and now if you just give yourself to Jesus by faith. He will give you that knowledge of himself. And if you've entrusted yourself to him already, well, you already know him. You already know him and you have the beginnings already of that eternal life for which you were made. You know God and better yet, you are known by him and loved by him. What a joyous comfort. Now, second and the last truth here about eternal life that we'll consider is found at the end of Jesus' prayer in John 17, so you don't have to turn anywhere. Just look down at the bottom, verse 24. 
Verse 24, he says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. This is what Jesus wanted. He wanted to bring us into his own glory that he had with the Father before the creation of the world. Amazing. What would that glory look like? Well, it's hard to say. Because how can we imagine that which is far better than what we have experienced here in this world? The Heidelberg Catechism rightly quotes from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.9, where he says this about glory that is to come. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, these things God has prepared for those who love him. Those things are what he has prepared for you in Christ and all who are found in him. In one sense, this is truly unimaginable glory. But again, perhaps C.S. Lewis, who had that vivid imagination, can give us a glimpse. And he describes our future glory in his last book, The Last Battle, The Chronicles of Narnia. And I love his description. This is what he describes. He says this, Things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. I love that. A new great story awaits us in glory with Christ. All of our adventures here in this world, with all of its sorrows and joys, it's only like the cover page or the title page to the great story that is to come when we enter into glory. That unread story will go on forever and ever, and each chapter will be better than the one before, each day more glorious, filled with more wonder. We'll never be bored, never sad, never fearing, but instead always blessed and praising God, our Creator and Redeemer, in perfect communion forevermore with Him. This is our great comfort and great refuge and hope that we have in Christ through his resurrection from the dead. These blessings are ours. We have the beginnings of them even now. May God give us that same hopeful perspective that the Apostle Paul had when he said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time to consider from your word these great and wonderful truths that are meant to comfort us uh, and also to stir us up in love and great zeal for all that you have in store for us in Christ, the glory that is to come. Lord, uh, make it so that our hearts treasure your kingdom in all that you've promised above that which we might find in this world, that we might live for you, that we too might live for Christ and find that after death, we will gain so much more. And this is not just wishful thinking. This is based on your promises. And your promises are always true, for you are unchangeable in your character. 
and always faithful. Great is your faithfulness, Lord. And so we praise you and ask that you would give us faith to trust in you all our days. In Jesus' name, amen.